This is Tony Bizella, head women's basketball coach at Seton Hall University, and you're listening to West Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? Tommy, if you told me I was going to be depressed after a 2-0 start, when we had an average margin of victory of what was 25 and a half per game, I would have asked you, who's going to get hurt? You know, there's a bunch of things on my wish list for this year, and right up there at the top of that list, is a healthy Miles Powell. There are so many different storylines that we're going to cover in today's podcast, but it all seems inconsequential now compared to the injury news of Powell and his ankle after the Stony Brook game. I, I mean, so if you're asking me how am I doing? No, 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 I, I'm not doing well today, Tommy. Well, Michael, I understand your feeling. And you know what? You mentioned the wins and the point differential. And let's be honest about it. Not all wins are the same. It's kind of why we do this podcast. We try to give proper perspective or at least our perspective on these games. And yes, someday yesterday afternoon, after all the events had settled in, my emotions had come down to a manageable level. I thought to myself, crap. We got to redo the entire podcast now. Reviewing the week in chronological order makes zero sense right now. But until I see the final results of the medical report, Mike, or they announce that Miles is truly out for the Michigan State game this coming Thursday, I refuse to be despondent. There was a lot of action this past week, Mike, and we need to give it its proper attention. So, with that in mind, on this week's podcast... We're going to cover the Miles Powell injury, how the rest of the team did against Stony Brook, and the impact going forward. Also, we're going to circle back around to the Earl Timberlake decision and recap the Wagner opener. And we're going to introduce the newest exciting segment this year, which we call Behind Enemy Lines. We will bring on a guest that covers one of our upcoming opponents to give us some insight on their team and players. This week's guest... Chris Solari from the Detroit Free Press will give us that inside look on the Michigan State Spartans. But But Stony Brook. Let's get into Stony Brook here. So Seton Hall, 74, Stony Brook, 57. The real story is Miles Powell goes down with the ankle injury at the 324 mark of the game. He's initially ruled out for the remainder of the contest, and it's deemed as precautionary. So you're like, okay, it's Stony Brook. I'm not going to bring him back out and risk further injury. You kind of take a deep breath. He's walking around, you know, in the locker room. He seems to want to get back in the game. Oh, okay. But the Pirates seemed shell-shocked, and they squandered an early 11-point lead, trailing 33-31 at the break. And the, the game was basically tight for the rest of the, the second half, as the Pirates led by four with 7.34 to play. They finally put it together, and they ended the game on a 21-8 to run to close it out. 
Sandro had 17 to lead all scorers. Q chipped in with 14. Gill went for a double-double, 10 and 10. And we also got some offensive spark off the bench from Jared Roden, who put in 11 points of his own. The storyline here is the Powell injury. Talk to me about it. Well, Willard almost immediately announced in the postgame that the injury is more serious than missing the remainder of the game. He mentioned potentially missing two to three weeks or a prolonged absence, whatever that may mean. He was going for x-rays after the game. Now, I'm not believing anything until I see some sort of report on that x-ray, if they do an MRI or anything of that sort. Willard usually likes to keep this cuff close to the vest. So it didn't look so bad in real time. It didn't look so bad as he left the court. But what do I know? I'm not a doctor. Do you believe no matter what, he needs to sit out the Michigan State game? Well, we're talking almost five full days of rest until Michigan State comes in. If he just rolled that ankle, I don't think so. You know, I I don't know. I guess I need to know the extent of that injury. Five days is a lot of time to rest for a rolled ankle. All right, so so I am no collegiate athlete, and I'm not going to claim that I ever played at that level of competition. But over the years of me playing basketball, I've rolled my ankle like six or seven times, and to different varying degrees. There are times where you can lace them back up and tighten it and put some tape on it and get right back out there for that same game. There's other times your ankle balloons and you literally are out for a solid two to three weeks before it feels better again. And so once again, we're not doctors. I'm not getting the inside look in the trainer's room as to what his ankle really looks like this morning. If there is any lingering effect, I know the fans don't want to hear this response from Kevin. We got a bigger agenda ahead of us for this year. It's to do damage in March. It's, I would love to knock Michigan State off its pedestal. You know, thrill the 18,000-plus fans are going to be in the rock on Thursday. But this game is not as important as winning, winning the war, right? You could lose the battle to win the war. This is one of those situations. No, absolutely. And I think they did immediately the right thing, even if it was just rolling the ankle a little bit and sitting them the rest of Stony Brook. Stony Brook was a meaningless game. Again, we were watching that game. Powell goes down, and I said, we should win this by double digits, even without Miles. And it took till the end of the game to do that, and I don't know that it should have, but we still won by double digits. All right, but how how soon do you want him back? You could be a fan, you could be the coach. Take it whichever way you want to look at it. I want him back as soon as he's medically cleared. If they say Thursday night he can play, play. That's all I can say. I'm okay with setting an expectation of the Bahamas tournament or the opening game against Oregon. I I think that when it comes to the breakdown of this non-conference schedule and how how exciting it can be and, and how it's ranked number one nationally in its toughness, it all hinges upon the success at that tournament, specifically with the result of that first game, which we've talked about at nauseum. You want to knock off Oregon, play in the top half of that draw, you know, get the Gonzaga matchup, maybe get a North Carolina, Michigan matchup. It all is contingent upon winning that first game. And that becomes a very difficult game to win without miles on the court. Look, I don't sit him to sit him because I'm afraid he's going to have a lingering effect. When the medical staff says he's good to go and Miles says I'm good to go, put him in. Okay. But in the meantime, can this team recover from a poor non-conference slate if, if they keep him out for a extended period of time because Willard is going to be cautious? He has a history of being cautious. Well, that's the question. Say they have a real bad non-conference uh, record by the time Big East play starts, 
and they have a mediocre Big East play. They don't get into March. Don't disagree. Don't don't disagree at all. But let me let me paint a different picture. Let's say they struggle to a six and six type of non-conference, but with a truly healthy Miles Powell back for the full conference slate, they go ahead and win the Big East regular season title. At the end of the day, maybe they've taken themselves out of that you know top four type seed line but they'll, they'll still be in the NCAA tournament. Does, does the NCAA committee take that into consideration? I don't know. But at the end of the day, I would rather see the team playing with a healthy Miles Powell, playing successful basketball throughout the Big East conference play and going into March on a high note and not watch him kind of drag this injury and nurse it throughout the entire season. Well, then all Willard has to do is put on his best Jim Beheim impersonation and say, don't pay attention to when my team struggled. Just pay attention to when my team did well. Oh, okay, but what if that results still in an eight or nine seed? Th then what? Then we're back where we're always – that's our normal position, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, I you guess know, so. then, then we'll see what happens. If this is truly a team of destiny, the eight-nine position won't hurt us. All right, let, let's go back to the impact of him not playing in that Stony Brook game itself. In my opinion, I thought Willer got off to a, a little bit of a struggle himself. Seems like the substitution patterns were a little off kilter. Uh, I didn't see an identity on the offensive side of the court. And specifically, I was very disappointed in Miles Kale, who had an opportunity to seize the moment, 0 for 5 from the field, only scored one point, and looked to be a shell of himself when we really needed someone to step up in the absence of Miles. Well, it almost seemed like Willard was rusty. He came off that two-game suspension. It was almost like he forgot how to coach almost. I mean, there was one point in that first half. You had the following, maybe I can't remember the entire rotation, but you had Samuels out there with Nelson, Roden, Reynolds, and I want to say Ike. So you technically have no real experience out there to be the man to put the ball in a hole. Agreeing with Willard's uh, estimation on Roden's play yesterday, he played like a freshman yesterday. He was jacking up shots early in the shot clock off of one or two dribbles, not in the flow of the game. So everybody who's been excited about him being our number two option, you know, let, let, let's let him develop a little bit. But you look at that rest of that rotation, where are the points going to come from? You got young kids or inexperienced kids at every position there. So it was a little weird to see that. Well, let's go back to Roden for a second. I, don't get me wrong. He makes that. He gets a nice rebound, tries to outlet cross court, gets picked off, kept Stony Brook in the game when it felt like we were getting some momentum. Yeah, th those were freshman type mistakes still. But he was still playing with a high level of energy. I mean, he was going strong oh, to the basket. yes, he's got energy. There's the I, excuse I, when a guy's playing poorly, but he's still trying real hard. Okay. Scored 11 points. He still scored 11 points. I'm not he, saying he played poorly. I'm making the comparison more to Kale. I mean, he, he, he's the guy who plays the same position. They're both right now slotted in at the three. Kale gives you one point. You know, twice he went to the basket and basically got rejected like he was playing JV versus varsity. And then the next time he got blocked again and this time got bailed out with a foul This call. isn't a Kale versus Roden argument, Mike. I know Roden's your new little favorite, but it's not the argument. And you know what? You bring up Kale. Good thing. We're going to hold this for later, but we might as well get into it now. With Miles Powell being out, you know the number one thing that Kevin's got to figure out? He needs to figure out what's wrong with Miles Kale right now because he's not played a good game all season, including the exhibitions for the most part. He needs to get his head back straight. 
Mr. Player Development needs to figure this out. Well, after Kale's performance and conversely, Shavar Reynolds' performance, why don't we let Shavar take the, the reins to start if Miles can't play next game? Oh, you're poking the bear, Mike. You want to poke I, I the gotta bear. I got to do it. I got to do it. Shavar had a great game. Hey, really, he had a nice game scoring the basket. He's driving the ball to the hole. He was facilitating. He had a few nice dishes. But let, let, let's take things into perspective. Last year, first game against Wagner, he has seven points. People are writing big articles about how Shavar Reynolds is coming into his own and he's earning that spot. And now it's the same thing. And what happens? And we've gone at a nauseum. And this is not the slam Shabar. We've got a test coming up against Michigan State. Shabar goes in there, has a nice game. I'll be the first one to clap and say, look at the progress my man Shabar has made. But until I see him play someone that can hang with us, I'm not going to get overly excited. All right. So, so you and I agree on this point because we have some background on this subject matter from last year when Q was going through some massive struggles at the point guard spot Willard felt like you know he had to mix it up now his hands going to be forced a little bit because Miles is presumably out for an extended period of time and Kale is struggling here might be an opportunity where he can mix it up again off of a strong performance from Shavar. Like I said, using the data from last year when he mixed it up with Q the next game on the slate was a tough road game against Georgetown in which he ran the point to start that game. And the first eight minutes were an abomination in the way the offense flowed. Maybe him being at the two guard will be a little bit different than him being thrust into the point guard role. I don't know. Well, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and we'll see, but I'm with you. I think a little bit of the, the feel good stories are a little bit over the top considering the level of competition in Stony Brook. Let's be fair to Shavar. Use him appropriately. He's not a point guard. He's never shown point guard capabilities. And don't fool yourself into thinking having five or six assists in a game means you can run the point. Point is a whole different thing than gathering up assist stats. Okay. He okay. comes so, into the two. He's facilitating from that position. He's driving to the hole. He's making plays. Hey, keep that up. Keep let's build, keep building on that performance, but do not fool yourself into thinking he can back up the point at a big East level. So here's where I think the adjustment should come. I think it'd be interesting to see both Q and Nelson start the game. Keep Q on the floor for his defensive fo focus and prowess. Let him play off the ball to be more aggressive with his scoring like he did back when he was with Sacred Heart. But I am concerned in listening to Willard's post game. I don't know how to really dissect this quote, but he's like, well, you know, if, if you have Q and Nelson on the court at the same time, you know, there's a chance that they could get into foul trouble. And and then what do you do? That Then you're stuck with one of them on the floor with two fouls. I, I didn't know what that meant, but I think he was trying to set the foundation for why someone like Shavar might start. I don't think that's appropriate. I didn't think it was appropriate when Shavar started last year. I think you were playing with fire there, getting Nelson upset because he's technically the backup point. All right, so if you're worried about having your two main ball handlers on the court at the same time to start the game because of potential foul trouble, slot Kale over to the two, bring in Roden as a starter three because you know what? Even though he played like a freshman yesterday, he's shown positive signs. Put him at the three, keep Shavar coming off the bench to back up the two. And then during the game, he's shown yesterday that he doesn't mind having Q and Nelson at the same time, just maybe not starting the game. Roll your rotation that way. 
So, so you would think if Roden's my new boy, I would want to see Roden thrust into the starting role, just like you kind of threw me that scenario. And I'm going to say that I prefer not to see that. I think he has more value to this team being that spark plug off the bench offensively. I, I do. So I'd like to see it be Kale still at the three and just let him know there's going to be a quick trigger or a quick hook, excuse me, with Roden on the bench getting ready to suffer him. I don't disagree necessarily, Mike. I was just trying to decipher Willard's uh, comments post-game. I technically would start Nelson and Q. Q with the two, because he's the combo guard anyway, you know, and he did a decent job putting the ball in a hole yesterday. Nelson running point, and then having your normal rotation after that. All right, so here's my last takeaway from this game. I And I think these two points go hand in hand. So the team struggled once again to shoot from three. They started off hot. They made four out of five, but they finished the game two of 13. I would like to see from an adjustment perspective, let's go more into the post. Maybe a matchup against Michigan State might not be the best opportunity to exploit that since that is one of Michigan State's strength boxing out, uh, you know, walling up on the interior. But when you play St. Louis, you play Florida A&M, why are we not going to consistently just ram the ball home to Sandro, Gill, Ike, use the height to our advantage, and maybe play inside out, and you'll get better looks at three. Well, to that point, Mike, when we were watching the game, I was wondering why they weren't going right to Mamu right away. You know, Powell goes out. Mamu's supposed to be your number two guy. He's been the ballyhooed guy all summer long as making such great strides. Focus the offense on him. What the hell? What are you doing? Where'd he go? Now, uh, as you mentioned, you want to see more post play. I'll tell you what. Roe Gill was the player of the game yesterday with how he came out in the second half. You know, he was part of that jumbled mess in the first half. But he came back in that second half, and he was doing things that I haven't seen him do. Rotations, uh, running out on wings, moving. Uh, that steal he had, that wasn't just some bad pass into the post, man. He he was moving. He looked fabulous yesterday. Uh, I'm going to feel like a broken record, and I don't even know if more than like 25 people ever listened to our very first podcast. But in that opening preview for last year, we're breaking down the rosters. And we said, Gil, Juco transfer, had to sit out a whole year. I'll take five fouls. Yeah, well, we thought he was going to be the the uh, Anthony type uh, player coming yeah, off the Rashid bench. Anthony. It was like Rashid Anthony's replacement. And uh, man, have we been wrong. I mean, he is a guy that can change the game for you. He did it a couple times last year. We said that at nauseum. He, he was the difference maker yesterday. He was an X factor. He changes shots if it doesn't block him. You can confidently get the ball low to him on the offensive side, and he can finish, whether it be on an alley-oop or a drive-in dish. And his defensive range, let me kind of explain this year, has kind of expanded besides the paint. I mean, I'm, I'm not happy on some of his closeout threes, but he's guarding a stretch five at the three-point line. I did not think that that was going to be in his wheelhouse. I didn't think he'd be able to come out high and hedge against the pick and roll. I am very confident. That if on a particular night, one center is not having a good game, you can easily slot the other one in. All right, you know, one last thought before we go back into last week. Samuels is very raw, and I think he showed that in the first handful of games. I think he's still playing way too fast. He needs to slow himself down and get into the rhythm of the game. I think he's going to be okay coming off the bench. He's just got to slow down a bit. I am excited about Samuels' potential, but it, like you said, it's raw. We, we saw the ability for him to play above the rim. 
that does not mean that he has the skill set going into potentially his sophomore season to automatically replace the offensive production of Miles Powell. That's a silly thought. And maybe we're once again wrong and he's going to turn the corner or is going to escalate at a faster pace than we think. But I think that raw skill set is going to take more time to develop. I think you're going to see some of his uh, contributions be more on the defensive side or be able to finish around the rim. I don't like him with the ball up high, having to create his own shot yet. So this leads me to what was supposed to be the headline news leading into this podcast, which was before the two games were played this week, we actually got the Earl Timberlake decision that Monday, which I told you was coming, by the way. You oh, didn't tell I'm, me was... I'm glad you had a good guess there, Mike. I'm glad you had inside <laughs> track. All right, but he makes the decision, and as you want me to say, he's taking his talents to South Beach. Uh, I, I have no idea what the real reasons are for him choosing Miami. You know, on Twitter, he said he wants to follow the rich tradition of Miami guards. Please, enough already. I mean, there are a ton of conspiracy theories out there, and, and I'm going to go there. I don't want you I going that, there, Mike. I'm going there because, I mean, this is this is what the fans are thinking. I'm not saying it's true. I have no foundation, but there is always the theory that when Seton Hall seems like they're in good position for a recruit and the people in the know are saying, trust me, he's coming, and then all of a sudden, last minute, he changes the course of the direction, just like Timberlake did here, that there's a bag drop behind the scenes. I don't think Luke Campbell's got the money to do that anymore, Mike. I, two live crew <laughs> haven't had a hit in 25 years. But the, there's this perception that because the NCAA is investigating everything from the FBI, you know, arrests and whatnot, that this is all of a sudden going to stop. No, it just means that people are going to watch their P's and Q's and be a little more tight-lipped or smarter about how they go about their business. To think that the bag dropping is all of a sudden not going to be part of the dirty recruiting until they really start cracking down on programs and putting teams on lengthy suspensions, I still think it's always a component that you have to factor in. It just is. The other conspiracy theories that were out there were also that maybe he wasn't going to get enough playing time coming into this loaded roster at Seton Hall that is going to return after we only lose Powell, Q, and, and Gill. Do you think that he wasn't going to have an opportunity to slot in and get some immediate PT? That's the great thing about sports, Mike. If you deserve the PT, you get the PT. I don't care that Willard has a history of not playing freshmen as much. He plays freshmen as much as he believes they can play. Miles Powell's a freshman, came off the bench, was had enough PT to get double-digit figures. If this kid was truly the real deal, he was going to take a spot somewhere. I agree. I agree. But I, I know you want to play devil's advocate on this next bullet point. So assuming everything was even keel, there was no shady business going on, give me the argument for Miami over Seton Hall. Okay, so let, let's let's really look at this, Mike. And, and I know people don't want to hear this, but let's be honest about it. Who are his top three teams, or technically that everyone believed were his top three teams? Miami, Providence, and us. And not necessarily in that order. Correct. Now let's let's look at it just from I'm a 18 year old kid ready to get out. I'm going off on my uh, on my own for the first time in my life, and my choices are South Orange, Providence, or Miami. 
I'm going to Miami, baby. I mean, it's it's got everything. Next, I know Miami doesn't have the basketball tradition that we think we have, but let's look at the current establishment. <laughs> let's look at the current coach, Jim Laranega. He's got two sweet 16s under his belt at Miami. He's got one ACC title at Miami, and he's made the postseason six of eight years at the school. Counterpoint, counterpoint. They don't care about basketball down there like like, like they care about football. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It It doesn't matter. To start this season, Miami gets to host Louisville since the ACC is expanding their their conference slate. So they're all opening with an in-conference matchup, and Miami hosts Louisville, and the Louisville fans out-attended the Miami fans for that game. Are you serious? Come on. Mike, you've never been at the uh, at, at the Continental Airlines Arena when the Husky fans have outnumbered the Seton Hall fans? You've never had that happen? No, they have not outnumbered us. They outcheer us. There's a difference. Oh, really oh even better. Like, even better. We got more numbers, but we're not louder. Mike, because we're only down by you're 20 talking in those about, games. You're you talking to about stuff that matters to me, you, and the fan base. You're not talking about stuff that matters to the average player. It's a culture, right? Don't when it goes on his his uh, visits. Another thing you want to—it's another thing that matters to me, you, and the fan base. I I said equal footing. I said equal footing. You know, maybe you want to go somewhere where they care more about basketball than the football team. That's all I'm saying. My, I personally believe there was a bag drop, but hey, what are you going to do, Mike? Mike, let me ask you something seriously. All, all, all seriousness, how long do you think Timberlake's at school? A year or two. A year or two. Two. Do you think he cares? And by the way, Miami football has been crap lately. Uh, All right. We're going down a rabbit hole that we don't want to go here. Let's go back to the the fans' reaction of the sky is falling. Because sometimes when I get the news, I I feel like I fall into this category as well. Can we sustain high-level top 25 success relying on our current model? No. What top 25 success have we had in the past 30 years? Well, there now. I'm saying we're here now. Right. No, you're How not. Do we gonna, no, that? no, you you can't sustain it. You can be that spoiler team. You can be that team that sneaks in and gets that, you know, nine through twelve uh, spot in the NCAA's. But you're no, you're not going to get that high level top twenty five success. You'll get the twenty four here and there if your team congeals at the end of the season. But no, we're not twelve. Why are we twelve? Because we happened to luck because into Miles Powell when he was a fat kid with a broken foot his senior year wow, of high school. Oh, you went there. Wow, you went there. It is what it is. I get it. Miles transformed his body. If Miles had the body that he has now, he was getting recruited. You're right. He probably would have been on the list of a lot of blue buds. Imagine if he didn't have the work ethic to get to that point, and he was always just like one of those, ah, I'm kind of in shape, kids. If, if Miles had played his entire college career with the body type that we see in that before and after shot, you know what? Miles is probably not leading us to where he's at right now. That That's just reality. I mean, it's a testament to what he's done and his commitment to the program and his basketball career. But yeah, let, let's put it into context. If Miles is trying to play at the Big East level with that body type, he probably still can shoot the lights out. He had the reputation to shoot the lights out back in the day, but he probably does not develop his game to get off the dribble, become this one-on-one, you-can't-guard-me type guy. Miles has done something special, but putting into the context of recruiting, if we can't land five-star recruits, can we ever take the program to the next level on a consistent basis? 
not a consistent I, I, basis. We'll no, be at what John Fanta thinks of us is, and this is not John Fanta just poo-pooing us, but we should be happy making the tournament year in year out. And that, and that's about the level we're going to get if we can't uh, land one of these guys. But I'm going to tell you this, Mike, you mentioned our current model. What is our current model right now, Mike? Uh, you know, it seems that we do better if we would try to get those three-star kids, that potentially four-star kid, you know, that kind of guy right in the middle mix and develop them over the years where we end up having kids for four years as opposed to the two-year turnarounds and see how we do there. But we still seem to go after that high-level kid. And I'm going to say this, Mike, the past three years, we have missed out on four big names, four of them. We've missed out on uh, Duval. We missed out on Quinterly, even though I don't know how far along the recruiting path we really had Quinterly. I know we missed out on it. We missed out on Maddox this year, and now we missed out on Timberlake. You missed out on a lot more than that. Going back to the Quinterly group, we had all these Fab Five kids in Jersey that we were making offers to when they were freshmen and sophomores. You know, the Nas Reeds of the world. We never even ended up on their radar at the end of the day before he goes to LSU. You know, we can go back to this LSU scores him. I still don't know. This goes back to the whole bag drop theory again, but let's let's get off the bag drop conspiracy theory. I agree with you. Our model right now is to find the under the radar player that has three star, four star potential and the ability to raise their game to a higher level. Let's take the guys that have been so far either we like or that are positive in our current pipeline. So Sandro's a three, Roden's a three, Tyree Samuel's like a four, but up in Canada where they're not probably getting scouted as much. You got Miles Kale, who was a four, but didn't go play at a private school. He played public school down in Delaware. Maybe if he would have played private school and played against higher competition, he would have gotten more exposure and had more teams calling upon him. You know, we're finding guys in these niche areas. Let, let's let's take Jahari Long out in Texas, who's a three. He was down in like the 200 range, and then just we got him to commit. And all of a sudden, boom, he blew up, and now he's in that you know, 120 range. If, if he started in the 120 range, would, he, would we be able to out-recruit some of the other schools? I don't know. We need but to the, just start closing, Mike. And you know what? Coffee's for closers, man. Oh, boy. Okay, all right. We're going to go here. I, I'm not saying this is my theory, but this, this, this falls into the, the sky is falling reaction from the fan base. And I'll give, you, I'll give you two points here. Can we get the five-star recruit without giving away the job? And then... At the end of the day, are people going to question that if if this came down to Providence and Seton Hall or Laranega and it was all equal footing, is Willard the closer? That That's what we're hearing out there. What's your take on that? Well, he's uh, he's obviously not closing, and it doesn't matter whether it's Miami or whether it's Providence. I mean, you know, there's a certain reality around it, and, 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 and Willard is technically not doing a good job closing these guys. But I got a question to ask you. I thought we had this inside track in the D.C. area, and we've lost two big D.C. kids in this, this year alone. So you're putting Tony Skin on task now. I'm putting him on blast, man. I mean, why did we bring you in? We have we have a rough we have a rough game against Stony Brook. We circle back around to recruiting, and then we come out guns ablazing. Let, let's see what happens. Let we still have the rest of the early signing period. 
We have the late signing period. We still have a scholarship open. We might have some players that are going to transfer out at the end of the year, supposedly. There probably will be two more new recruits that get added to this roster. Let's see what they do before the entire 2020 recruiting slate is closed out. You ask me what I think about the model. I think the model should be this because this seems to have been very successful for us. We All recruit right. those those three and maybe lower level four kids as much as we can. And we try to get the, the transfer portal guys and bring in good, solid ball players. Q's a good, solid ball player. Taco Molson seems to be on the same route. Roe Gill was, is a transfer. I'll, I'll take these kind of guys and build it. And maybe, you know what? Maybe getting to the NCAAs is our, is our place. Here's my last point on this topic. I don't mind the model. Who am I to complain about the model? We suffered through the Bobby Gonzalez years, suffered through the early Kevin Willard years, and now we've had success. So who am I to poo-poo success or to be, you know, ungrateful for making it to four straight NCAA tournaments chance for five, which is a new program record. However, if you miss on a three-star recruit that you perceive to have upside, you end up with the Dalton Solfers and the Miles Carters. Oh. And the Dalton Soffer wasn't even a three, I don't think, man. Nah, it's borderline. But uh, the point is, if you why do you gotta take a shot at the local San Diego kid that got that got recruited, Mike? Because that becomes one of the centerpieces of your recruiting class. And once again, this is not to try to pick on the kid. He wasn't worthy of stepping on the floor during Biggie's competition. If you miss out on complete recruiting classes. And for, for the longest period there, it was Miles Powell, Miles Kale, and a bunch of misses. You don't have a roster. You don't have a roster that can compete at this bubble NCA expectation that we're now setting the bar at. That's my concern. So you got to raise the level maybe one notch higher in order to sustain that success. All right, All right, we're we're, we're we beating move a on. horse here. Let's yeah, talk about something. Let's talk about another positive outcome that we'll probably have some negative opinions on. Positive? Seton you, you Hall were... beats Wagner College 105-71. It was a slow start for the Pirates. The Seahawks were within six with less than six minutes left in the first half. But we went on a bit of a run and went to half with a 15-point lead. Wagner kept the margin as low as 12, up to about 10 minutes to play and then the pirates went on a 26 to 4 run over the last 621 leading to a timeout and extended garbage time to close it out mike <laughs> let's talk about the good the bad and the ugly you want to talk about the good all you were doing was crying about how upset you were about the start of this game Content, how this game mike, finished mike talk about the good we'll get right, to the about, bad I'll, and the ugly I'll, I'll talk about the good uh miles powell was miles powell finished with 27 points an efficient seven of 13 from the field four of nine from three and i love the fact that he got to the line 11 times making nine really really excited about the twin towers we already talked about Roe in the Stony Brook game, but you got a combined output of 19 points, six rebounds, and five blocks from Gil and Obiagu. You had Q and Nelson with seven and six assists, respectively. You had five players in double figures, and we dominated inside the paint, shooting 61% on 28 of 46. You want to, you want the bad now? Now you want the oh, bad? I'll give you the bad. Go ahead, give me the How bad. How in the world? How in everything that is holy does a team this big get out-rebounded by Wagner 
37 to 36, Mike. They were also barely out rebounding Stony Brook in the following game, 39 to 35, by the way. Wagner was also missing three of its normal rotation players, including their leading scorer. Free throws weren't an abomination, but it was only at 69%. And Sandro went one for four, and we can't have Sandro doing that if he's going to be the second man. And Samuels had an 0 for 2 that looked really bad. He looked like he was just rushing him to get off the line. You talked the past year about is Miles Powell going to have the appropriate attitude to be the leader of the team? And we got another T for Miles after a little scrum with Wagner of all things. We were also 9 for 24 from 3, but but without Miles and Q who shot the ball well, we're only 3 from 11. And our big three shooters past Miles, Sandra was 0 for 3. Kale was 1 for 3. Roden was 1 for 3. You can't go 2 for 9 from those guys, Mike. So so you're disappointed with the overall performance of this first game? I don't I was disappointed that it took till middle of the second half till we took off on a team of this kind of talent we did this multiple times last year and it bit us in the ass a few times we had a mo- multiple games last year where miles is taking a final shot that clanks off for whatever reason and i believe it was a butler game that stands out that we did that against we we lucked out into beating marquette in the same kind of fashion we played three quarters of the game kind of half-assed and then we really rolled at the last 10 minutes we can't do this if we're going to be a number 12 team mike sure sure but th- these games are still a tune-up there's, there's a reason why you put a wagner on your schedule to start the year you know we, we even joked saying it was going to be an extension of another exhibition game here's here's where i'm going with this i love the first week of the college basketball season to look around the country and see who's not prepared and who might get picked off. And the fact that we were, yeah, we were tuning up and we had some good and we had some bad. You still walked out of Dodge with a 30 point victory. I know it's not about the final tally, but let me put you in the shoes of some other programs. And you pretend to be a fan of these results representing those teams across the country. I'm going to walk through some examples and you can give me your take. Okay. How would you feel if your team was Kansas and you commit 28 turnovers versus Duke, the most in the last eight years under Bill Self. Okay, I'm not happy with the turnover total, but Duke is not Wagner. Go ahead. Fine. Okay. Alabama loses their home opener to Penn. Now, a couple a couple podcasts ago, we mentioned that Alabama's not going to be a good team, and they played Penn. Penn has been picked second in the Ivy League this year. They also had two first-place Ivy League votes, and Bama is a middle to lower-of-the-road SEC team. They're not good. Syracuse only scores 34 points in a home loss to Virginia, and, and all across Twitter, all you got to hear about is that Cole Anthony he scored 34 points himself. So what what was more impressive? I you know what, Mike? Anything that chaps you Jim like Bayheim's. You like that one. Oh man, go <laughs> ahead, man. I love that one. All right. Georgetown has to rally down 19 against Mount St. Mary's before they win. You were just cherry picking random games throughout the schedule. None of these teams are ranked 12th in the nation. And none of these teams played anybody worth the darn except for Kansas. I don't care. 
I know you don't, but these are all Power Five schools. Is it too much to ask for Seton Hall to put the boot on the neck of Wagner right in the beginning of the game? Is that too so much to you, ask for? So, so will you only be happy if your team pulled a Utah this weekend? Utah went out and beat Mississippi Valley State 143 to 49. It was a 94 point win, which was the largest against a D1 school in NCAA history. They had two players with triple doubles. Is is that what they needed to do no, for you to be happy? I would have been happy is if we built up a big lead early. They sat Miles Powell down with like 10 points in the first 18 minutes or something. And then the rest of the team got into the flow of the season. This was way too kind of herky-jerky a game up until 10 minutes left for me to be happy with, Mike. I'm sorry. It's right, Wagner. Right. And they didn't have three of their normal players i and i'll tell you the ugly i'll tell you the one ugly i'll take out of this and this was i saw this on i saw tweets about it i saw it on the message boards that we like to reference and i actually got a text from longtime listener often critic brian fitzgerald of the wall street journal asking me why does walsh look empty at the beginning of this game because it's it had the feel of an exhibition game. I know it was the official opener on the schedule, but it, it just, we talked about this. It you know, has the I, feel of an exhibition. No, I don't get my, that's, you are such, oh my God, you're making excuses this week. I swear to goodness. Is it too much to ask for 2,000 people to show up at Walsh Gym for the opening night? I'm changing the narrative. So, so I want to bring this back to some actual basketball talk. Offensive continuity. There was a lot of talk comparing Q and Nelson. Kind of knew this was going to happen. You know, who's the bet? Who should be running point? Who should be the starting point guard? Where does the offense work better? They both uniquely have different strengths and values that they bring to the team. It's, it's clear that Nelson, in my opinion, plays the point guard position more naturally. Q doesn't have the consistent ability to break down his guy off the dribble. And I think that kind of bogs down the offense. The one point that I want to take away here, because I don't want to get into this long-winded Q versus Nelson debate. I love the fact when they both played on the court together. We've already kind of talked about how that could be a solution going forward if Miles out for an extended period of time. When the two played together during the Wagner game, what did you feel about the offensive flow and, and how things were working. Well, it was nice in the sense that, you know, like you said, Nelson's that pure point guard and Q could work to its strengths more, which is more putting a ball in a hole. I mean, we saw examples of Q not being able to break guys down off his dribble against Wagner and against Stony Brook. I mean, it's kind of obvious. He just can't do it, which is fine. I mean, it's not your strength. Don't don't push it. But he had a lot of success scoring the ball yesterday when Nelson was at the point. And I think we're making a, a lot of, I think we're making a mountain out of Mohill about Nelson's tech as defensive shortcomings. I mean, yeah, okay, he's not Q. But then we sit there and we try to point out every time Nelson does something bad on defense, every single time. You know, guys are going to miss assignments. All right, so... Let's transition to this missing assignments and, and move on to our last bullet point from this Wagner game. We got out-rebounded by one. What does that come down to? Everyone wants to make this about boxing out. I think we're going to have some good and bad from all this shot-blocking ability in the middle. I think you see a lot of Gill and Obiagu leaving their man under the basket to come out to try to block shots or alter shots. I'm okay with that. 
But what I'm not seeing is the rest of the team rotate back defensively to recover and slide man over, right? So when one guy decides to go to double team or one guy comes to give weak side help, you're supposed to leave your guy and backfill the man in order to kind of protect the basket. I don't see that when it comes to Gil and Obiagu leaving their guys to, to block a shot. It has this trickle-down effect where the offensive boards get crashed by the opponent, and that's why I think we're losing the rebounding advantages, and I'm truly concerned that it's going to manifest itself so much worse in the Michigan State game. I don't necessarily disagree. I, I think boxing out, though, does have a, a part of it, Mike. I, I think we do miss out on some of the basics. I mean, J.P. Pelsman uh, bemoaned the fact that we don't set good screens. We don't box out. We're not rotating on our defensive uh, positions. So I, this all is that those basics that need to happen, the small little things that need to happen every game. So, Tommy, I, I was wrong. I, I said boxing out was going to be my final point on the, on this Wagner game. And I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. So Shaheen Holloway gets suspended now at St. Peter's for four games. And you're like, what, what the heck does that have to do with the Wagner game? Torian Thompson got a DMP in this game. He didn't play. We still blew them out. Willard wasn't there for the rotations, and he did not get off the bench at all in this game. Darnell Brody ent entered the game when Gill and Obiagu both had two fouls in the first half and played extended minutes. And when asked in the postgame why Thompson did not get any minutes, Grant goes, coach's decision. And immediately, Jerry Carino writes, I'm done with this storyline. He's the 12th man. I'm moving on. I think there's more to it. I think both Seton Hall and St. Peter's have gotten out ahead of this situation with the NCAA potentially looking into if there was actually tampering and therefore they suspended their coaches. I think conversely, Seton Hall is going to sit there and say, we are not going to risk putting Thompson on the floor this year to find out down the road that any success that this team has is negated because there were actual violations, including Thompson and his Five minutes on the court are now going to make all these wins to be vacated by some stupid NCAA ruling that might happen 10 years down the road. I don't think you're going to see Thompson play this entire season. I, I think he'll play once the NCAA comes back and says, yes, St. Peter's, yes, Seton Hall, that's a sufficient punishment. We're moving on from this. Now, Jer uh, Jerry Carino saying that he's the 12th man and that's all that there is to it, That that's not... I mean, that that's not really a correct statement because you end up playing the walk-on and then you don't play Thompson. That's not 12th man. You know, tw if you play, if you brought in Aven and you brought in Thompson at the same spot, then you're seeing to yourself, wow, Thompson's falling in the rotation. But you didn't play him. And I don't think he played against Stony Brook either. So nope. I think nope. they're waiting for the NCAA to weigh in on this. And to be honest, with his defensive struggles, are we really losing anything at this point? Well, I'm not holding my breath to wait for the NCAA to make an actual decision. How about that? And let me just say this. Many a camera shot of that Seton Hall bench yesterday after shots going in has Thompson celebrating with his teammates. He's keeping his heads up. He's being a good teammate. So was so that your woe? Did you see that moment? Oh, Michael, I tweeted that out already, and I short-circuited anything we might have seen at Stony Brook. I, I, I'm sorry. You think this is like a signed, sealed, and delivered answer. I, I disagree. I, I think the two four-point plays that Powell put up 
in the Wagner game were quite impressive. No, no, it's not. It's not a matter of not impressive, but it's stuff that we kind of expect. Miles does that kind of stuff. A six eleven guy doing a no look over the head drop off for the big man to dunk it. Are you kidding me? Okay, all right. Uh, I'm not gonna fight you on this one, my boy was in the whoa, did you see that moment? Kudos to Sandro. All right, let, let's move on to our other fun segment, stupid things the announcer said. I don't know if this falls into the category as stupid, but Donnie Marshall must have been listening to the podcast because he stole one of your lines. Uh, early in the game, as Willard's making a lot of wholesale substitutions, he says, this is the time for Willard to be, you know, the scientist. You always say the mad scientist, you know, as he's always in his lab. Really? Really, Donnie? You got, you got to steal words from Tom. I, I got to draw the line somewhere. I got to draw it somewhere. Donnie Marshall's listening to the podcast. I love it. So therefore, it falls into stupid things the announcer says. Well, Mike, let's move on to this week and see what's going on. We've got our new special segment, Mike. We go behind enemy lines. And this week, we're going up against Michigan State. And what better way to prep for that game than to get the inside story from a man who follows them for a living? This is going to be a lot of fun. Throughout the year, we're going to have one guest on per week to highlight one of the marquee matchups that's upcoming. You know, we can speculate all we want. We can talk about what we've seen uh, from other games that we've caught on TV, read a box score. But now we're going to get the inside scoop. We get to find out if there's a nagging injury, if there's turmoil within the team, who's stepping up, who's that X factor going to be that we have to keep our eyes out for. You know, wh where do our strengths and weaknesses match up against the opponent? I am really excited to have an insider on the show to represent the marquee matchup that we're going to go up against. This is going to be a lot of fun. Welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, a beat writer for the Detroit Free Press, Chris Solari. Chris, how are you doing today? Tom, Mike, I'm doing well. It's a crazy time up here in, in East Lansing, but a game on Sunday night against Binghamton that all of a sudden becomes irrelevant with everything else going on. It's uh, a crazy couple hours here. Chris, thanks for joining the show to preview Michigan State and the upcoming matchup with Seton Hall, but can you allude to that situation that's taking place right now in, in Lansing? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> All-American guard Cassius Winston's brother uh, died on Saturday night. Uh, he was struck by a train. Uh, he was a basketball player at Albion College, a Division three school here in Michigan. Uh, he's the middle of the three Winston brothers. Uh, their youngest brother also plays at Albion with him. Uh, so, obviously, a lot of things we're trying to find out right now on the fly, but uh, we don't know whether Cash Swinson will play against Binghamton tonight, um, which is Sunday. And then as far as the Seton Hall game, uh, that's also in limbo. So, you know, a lot of things have changed and could change by the time these two teams play on Thursday. Well, as, as you know, we've had some changes on our side of the fence as well with Miles Powell having his injury in the last game, but it doesn't compare to what's going on with uh, Cassius and his family, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to be a rough time, uh, I would imagine, for, for everybody here in East Lansing because a lot of those guys on that team uh, were good friends with Zachary Winston. Um, he, is, he played at Albion. Michigan State played Albion in an exhibition game on October 29th. Zachary didn't play because he was hurt, but he got cleared and played Friday for them. Um, and, you know, a lot of those guys on the Michigan State team played in Moneyball Summer League here in Lansing with, with Zachary and with Cassius. Um, so 
where this team's head is right now, um, coming off the Kentucky loss on Tuesday, and now this, which is obviously a lot more weighty than than anything involving rankings, involving opponents, or anything else in basketball in general. Um, that remains to be seen as well. Well, it, it kind of goes without saying. We wish the Winston family nothing but the best and send out our condolences and, and hope they can get through this issue. I agree wholeheartedly. All right, Chris, let, let's just dive right into getting to know the team a bit then and, and keep this moving forward. So it seems yeah. like the team has been hit by the injury bug early in the season. Uh, Cassius Winston had a uh, hamstring issue that was announced at uh, Big Ten Media Day. Kyle Athens had a high ankle sprain. Tom McKithier broke his nose. How have those injuries affected each of their plays so far? Yeah, Winston has played. Uh, he played in that Kentucky game and, and battled foul trouble in that game. Uh, so, but his 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 shot was a little affected. I think he went one of seven from three. Looked a little off, but you know he played through it and he, he made and created plays. They get twenty one points in that game and looked good uh, offensively. Defensively, he was a little bit slow. Kithier played with a broken nose. He was in foul trouble. Michigan State was in a lot of foul trouble in that game. Uh, Kyle Arns had, as you mentioned, he had, he had suffered an ankle injury in the secret scrimmage against Gonzaga. Um, also has been dealing with back problems for the last year and a half uh, or so. Um, but he played 20 minutes in that game and, and looked good, I thought. I, he's a difference maker. He's kind of an X factor for that team when he's healthy uh, with his toughness and, and ability to, to mix things up and shoot outside. And uh, Kithier is a guy that they need that, that four. Uh, that four has been the question mark. They, they brought in Marcus Bingham off the bench. He had some good things, some bad things in that Kentucky game, but he's a 6'11 guy who can, who can stretch the floor from outside when he's right. Um, they've got freshman Julius Marble, uh, played some minutes in the post with the foul trouble, and, and Malik Hall is another freshman that they really like at that four spot. Um, but yeah, those injuries certainly were, have been a little bit of an issue, I guess, right now for Michigan State. Well, sticking with the injury theme, Josh Langford has a stress fracture in his foot and he's expected to be out until at least January. You know, he was expected to provide a lot of offensive support for Winston. How does the dynamic of the team change now with Langford on the bench? Well, you saw that in that Kentucky game. That's what the thing that they miss right now is that secondary shooter because Kentucky was able to cheat out on Winston and kind of force him side to side rather than around the arc. That new arc is obviously a little bit different. They've got they, they don't have the experience of, of the shooting and, and really the defense that Langford provided, provided last year in, in the 13 games that he played. Um, they, they're turned to a freshman, Rocket Watts, four-star kid, uh, played alongside, I can't remember which ball, LaMelo, LiAngelo, I think. <laughs> One of the balls. Last year. One of the ball brothers, the, the youngest of the ball clan. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's a kid who can fill it up. I mean, he got 15 threes in the game and 64 points last year for Spire. Uh, against St. Ed's in Cleveland, which is a, a pretty good school, a pretty good powerhouse in, in the Cleveland area. Uh, but he is struggling with his shot right now. They don't have that second shooter without Langford. Um, you know, so teams are going to be able to cheat out a little bit on Winston and, and make it hard for him, uh, you know, if he does play, to, to, to hit from outside. And they need someone, you know, whether it's uh, big man Xavier Tillman, uh, whether it's Aaron Henry, the off guard, the, the kind of the swing man, uh, they need to find that secondary shooting right now that, that really they were hoping to get with Langford and, and the graduation loss of Matt McQuaid and Kenny Goins. Now, some relief from uh, that outside shooting problem could be on its way. Former Marquette player Joey Hauser is still waiting for an answer from the NCAA on his appeal to be immediately eligible from a hardship waiver. Now, 
for most fans looking in from the outside, this would seem like a standard sit one before you play scenario. Previously, a transfer would have to prove that his previous school showed egregious behavior to play immediately. Now it just needs to be mitigating circumstances. Now, I don't know if Marcus Howard jacking every shot known to man can be considered a mitigating circumstance, <laughs> but do you have any idea about what this could be for Joey? It's, it's all in limbo. I mean, I, it's kind of a, a roulette wheel, really, with the NCAA giving waivers right now, and I think that's kind of maybe some of what Michigan State's doing. They're trying to analyze it with other uh, appeals that have gone through. Um, they, they were denied the initial waiver request, and I believe a second the, the appeal was denied. So I believe they can get up to three appeals, but it's, it, they still are waiting to find out anything on Joey Hauser from the NCAA. And, you know, there's rumors out there that he could possibly be eligible for second semester because he did early enroll um, his freshman year uh, at the semester uh, at Marquette, but he was hurt. Um, he had an injury in high school and was there. So I don't know how they're approaching this. They've been kind of you know, with, with all these waiver requests, you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes with the, the wrangling and, and, and finessing of, of the, the process. So, I, you know, it, it's been about a month of we're going to hear this week um, for sure of what's going to happen. But, you know, every week's come by and, and something else has changed and, and something has been denied or it stays in limbo. So that's kind of where it is. I mean, I don't know if they'll hear by, by Thursday if Joey Hauser will be eligible. Um, but certainly when, when and if Michigan State gets him whether it's this year, whether it's next year, this is a kid that that gives them a boost at the one spot where they're they're struggling the most at that four to try and find some consistency. Chris, I want to go back to that acid test game from the other night. I know it's hard to judge a team off the first game of the year, especially with the magnitude of like the Champions Classic versus a team like Kentucky. But what were your observations from that performance? Well, I thought that it reminded me a lot of Michigan State's game against Kansas last year in the in the uh, Champions Classic, in that you know they got down at times. Uh, but because of Winston and just the type of player he is, the poise that he shows and, and kind of exudes to the rest of his teammates, no, no league felt like it was ever too much for that team to overcome. And they fought back and they were inside. A, they got it within two points, I think, with about a minute and a half left before Tyrese Maxey just, just drilled one from, I mean, if you go back and watch the film on that shot, Aaron Henry was out with a hand on his face and the shot was at least – you know, four feet behind the new arc. So that oh, tells easily. you how deep oh, that bucket was. was. And, oh, that was a, that was an I onions mean, type shot. Yeah. And, you know, I, Tom Izzo was frustrated and angry in, in the moment. But, you know, when I talked to him on uh, Wednesday uh, after they got back or Thursday after they got back, I had time to watch the film and, and kind of go through things. And, you know, it was a matter of missed shots. I mean, Michigan State struggled. I think they went five of 26 from three in that game. Uh, they had about 13 good looks from what Izzo said that just didn't fall from behind the arc. And, you know, do the math on that. I mean, that's, that's a lot of points right there to tell you they were right in that game. Um, and I, I just think Kentucky's length bothered them at times. And it was certainly, uh, it, it, I think it, it, if you could lose a game and, and take some positives out of it, those were there. I think Marcus Bingham showed some things uh, that people maybe didn't see in terms of toughness. Um, and ability to crash, uh, which is crazy to say for a 6'11 guy, but he's also only uh, 225. And I think if you look really closely, you might see a tattoo of Dixon Ticonderoga on him <laughs> because he looks like a pencil. Um, this is, but I mean, they, they, they found some things that they need to work on, um, particularly those, those high ball screens. I, I thought they had trouble 
uh, with Kentucky's length on them. Uh, they were cheating out on Winston so much um, that, that, you know, when you don't have that secondary shooter, you can do that. So certainly some things that they know that they need to work on and, and some things that I think they came across a little bit, feeling a little better once they rewatched that tape. Is 5 of 26 just first game jitters, or is that potentially the Achilles heel for this team, though? You know what's crazy? The last time they missed that many threes uh, was at the Garden against Kentucky uh, in Winston's freshman year back in uh, late 2016. They went 5 of 26 in that game. So I don't know if it's if it's a Kentucky factor. I don't know if it's a Garden factor, because I know the Winston struggled when the Big Ten tournament was there uh, a couple years ago. Uh, his outside shot was was not falling, so that may have been maybe it's a maybe it's a an arena factor in some ways, but but this is a team that even before that this team shoots the ball well from outside, and they did that was one of their things that they were able to do last year. They were able to move the ball, get open shots, and they had them in this game. They just didn't fall. Maybe it is an arena factor because that's how the Knicks shoot every night. Really? Yeah, I mean, really? Come on, I, I don't Tommy. Think it's a, I don't think it's the same talent factor <laughs> with the opponents. They showed that the talent was there to win that game. I don't know if the Knicks have that issue. Yeah. All right. Spe- speaking of talent, I mean, when when Cass, someone like Cassius gets into foul trouble, I, I know they were battling back every time Kentucky kind of extended the lead. Michigan State fought back and cut it down to a bucket or two. But, you know, if – he falls, finds himself in situations like this again. Does the team have enough offensive firepower to kind of win a game of that magnitude? Well, the better question is they have a point guard to run the offense. And that's, that. even with Winston scoring, how everything operates around and through him is really the big key. I mean, they've got a sophomore and foster lawyer who really looked out of place in that Kentucky game with that elite athleticism of the Wildcats. Um, it's a kid that's about 5'11", a um, little bit slow, a little undersized. Uh, can shoot the lights out, but getting his shot is an issue. Um, and, you know, handling longer guards is an issue. And he's really their their secondary option at the point guard. And Izzo pulled him late in that first half after a, a pretty rocky stint and put in uh, Fred Hoiberg's son, Jack, who's a walk-on uh, for the final 50 seconds. And then in the second half, he went to Rocket Watts, the off guard, uh, who played some point. Um, he ran him after Winston got four fouls, put him at the point, Saw freshman move, you know, freshman mistakes, freshman blunders a little bit with with the ball, but um, that may be their second option. That's that's going to be a big issue all year for them. Is if Cash Winston gets in foul trouble, which most of the time he doesn't, uh, but but certainly now when teams are going to be more aggressive with him, uh, you and not knowing how the refs are going to call these games, it's got to be a concern for Izzo. Um, everything's got to go and flow through him. The question is, um, you know, they have the offense. Can they set him up? for that offense with someone else now moving on to this thursday's night matchup with our pirates i mean some of the shine has obviously been taken off this game but it still could be somewhat of a classic where do you feel michigan yeah. state can take advantage of some of their strengths in this game well it's it's one of those tbd things i mean we have to kind of get an idea and gauge of where cash winston is right now um i don't know i mean I, I you know going through a personal tragedy like that um i don't know where his head is as a, as a person, let alone a player right now. I don't know where his teammates head is. Um, you know, some of the things that I think where they can, they can tell I me mean, Xavier Tillman's a tough matchup for anybody. Um, especially now that he, in the off season in the summer, he showed that, that he's got a little more extended range. So if you got a stretch five like that, that that's one area where they could look to, he, he's also really good with the ball. Uh, I think that's the other thing is their big men are pretty good with passing the ball. Um, so if you can get some interior passing, going um you know it's, it's going to be tough 
um, especially right now with, with where this team's psyche is, um, especially going on the road, especially coming off uh, that, that Kentucky loss and who knows what happens with Binghamton before that. Um, but I, I think that, you know, in terms of what can they do to, to exploit this, I mean, if you get Winston and he's playing and he's going north and south, that everything flows into place. What do you think is something that the Pirates can exploit themselves? Pressure. Got out. Got to get out. Use the length. Um, disrupt them on the wings. I think that's the big thing. I mean, you know, make it tar- challenging for for a guy like Aaron Henry, who who hasn't really shown consistency with his outside shot yet. Um, take away his driving lanes because that's what he likes to do. Um, then with Watts, you gotta you gotta force him to to show that he can make some shots. I mean, he was missed all four of his shots. He struggled with his shooting. And again, this is a kid who who has the ability to shoot and shown it. He has just struggled with it. He's been better defensively, I think, than, than Izzo had thought he would be. But offensively, he's just been kind of in a funk since this summer with his shot. He's got a little, battling a little Achilles strain that he had earlier, played through it. Um, so I, I think if, if, you can, if you can pressure those guards in particular, that, that especially on the entry passes, they like to get that entry pass to Tillman. They like to get that entry pass to Kithier. If you can deny that, um, you know, you, you send them into a little bit of a discombobulation. Now, we know the big names that the Spartans will trot out there, but who do you think could be the X factor for the for Michigan State that we don't know about? Well, I think Kyle Lawrence is one of those guys, a fifth-year senior who who has had a lot of injuries throughout his career, um, but, you know, he had a, a game-winning dunk against Louisville uh, with a shot clock winding down. When he's right, he can hit outside when he's when he's healthy, he's a scrappy defender, um, you know, really an energy glue guts kind of guy. Um, I think he's one guy. And I think, I think a guy like, like Thomas Kithier, and then actually, let me take that back. Gabe Brown is a kid who's really another X factor on this team. He's six, seven wing, um, can shoot the lights out, but he also hasn't met a shot he hasn't taken yet. So, um, <laughs> we've you know, but, guys like but that. If he gets, yeah, but if he gets hot, you know, we saw it in the NCAA tournament against LSU. I mean, he could knock them down from outside and provide that secondary shooting they need. All right, Chris, I want to go in a different direction here. I want to take a look at the program from more of a high-level perspective. So Michigan State basketball has had a tremendous success over over the years, reaching eight Final Fours during Coach Izzo's tenure. However, you guys have only won the national title once as as a show for those efforts. You build statues for coaches like that here at Seton Hall. But what's the annual bar set in terms of the expectations at Michigan State? Well, the annual bar set is Final Four and beyond. I, I think that's that's been the thing for Tom Izzo really since that first group with the team Cleves and Morris Peterson and, and all those guys, uh, Jason Richardson. You think about all, all the people that built that program, Antonio Smith. Um, that that established what the bar is, and he's done it five times since those guys were gone. Um, you know, last year obviously being another one. That's that's really the expectation to get to the Final Four and have that chance. Um, he's had some teams where he's had he thought were his best teams fade, you know, the, the 16 team lost in the first round of middle Tennessee state, uh, team with Keith Appling and Adrian Payne, their senior year lost in the elite eight. Um, you know, some of his best teams haven't even reached the final four. And some of the teams that he kind of had some question marks about like 2015 and last year, um, played through the issues and, and managed to, and because the expectations are high, because, Everything is about getting to that Final Four and, and getting into that second national championship. Um, they, they show some resolve when it comes to March. I mean, the, the joke around East Lansing is is January, February, Izzo. 
you know, they would really like it to be January, February, Izzo, Izzo, because <laughs> April hasn't been very kind to them when they do get there. Um, so and this is a group from a chemistry standpoint uh, that he has really liked. And, you know, that Texas Tech game last year, I think, you know, there, there was some frustration because that team was playing so well and just ran out of gas with, with injuries and, and limited rotation and Winston playing on bad knees at that point uh, after playing like basically – 37, 38 minutes a game down the stretch. Uh, he took on an extra load when Langford went out last year. And they need him to do that again this year with, with Langford out until some of those younger guys kind of bounce back. But but this is a group that I think right now, uh, and, I, and we've said it a few times, this is a group that I think gives us the best chance for that second national title just because of its, its, its change in offense its ability to move the ball and, and get guys in position to score. Now, I think it'd be remiss if we didn't ask at least about the overall campus vibe. Uh, Michigan State has unfortunately had a set of scandals in the past year or so. Do you think the effects of the unfortunate Larry Nasser incident and the shakeup in the university leadership still have a ripple effect through its flagship sports? Yes and no. Um, I think that, that the coaches have done a lot to try and push past and through it but the, the things are still there and they still linger and you know there's still questions from from an administrative standpoint um there obviously were some some questions with the football and basketball programs um there's there's federal lawsuits that are going on it's it's a it's a dark time i think would probably be a good way to say it um but certainly the basketball team has been one especially last year that you see them kind of giving the university a little bit of hope giving the students and alumni some some positive things and, and what has really been uh, a really tough three to four year stretch for the university. So this year marks a quarter century of Tom Izzo being the head coach and actually the 37th with the program. Is there any indication he might consider retiring the clipboard anytime soon? <laughs> well, his son, Steven is a freshman walk on. So let's, let's extrapolate that out. I think he would <laughs> like to keep him at least for four years. And I think the university would like to keep Tom for at least four or more years. Uh, he, he, to me, strikes me as a guy like Joe Paterno who won't step away. It, not because, uh, just because the game means so much to him and, and it's so much of his life. And, and you know, I, I think that any talk of Izzo stepping away, you know, would be premature. But, hey, you know, if he wins a national title and is able to go out on his own accord, maybe. All right, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, I'll give you two scenarios. Let's say uh, Winston and Powell both play. Give me a prediction on the game. If both players are out, give me the prognosis. Boy, that's, that's a really hard one. I haven't even had a chance to process a lot of this yet. But, um, you know, I, I this is going to be a tough test for Michigan State to go on the road with everything going on, even if Winston does play. Um, I, I can see this being – to me, I think this is a five-point game either way as, as a coin flip. Um, with them in, with them out, um, if one of them plays, I think – you know, it gives if one plays and one doesn't, I think it gives that team the better chance um, because there's an emotion factor here with Cassius Winston too. That, I mean, you know, who knows how he responds? Maybe he's down. Maybe he plays the game of his life for his brother. Um, there's just so much unknown between now and Thursday. It's kind of crazy to say that because I thought maybe I'd have a little better answer for you guys on that. But the the events of today have really changed a lot. Well, Chris, we appreciate you spending some time with us here and giving some insights on Michigan State. It's nice that we were able to go behind enemy lines, so to speak, and get your input. I'm glad I could join you guys. And, uh, you know, let's look forward to Thursday, and hopefully it's a great game. 
Chris Solari, everybody. All right, Mike, we just heard what Chris Solari thinks will happen this week. Mike, what do you think is going to happen against Michigan State? I don't know. I kind of fall into the same boat as Chris. There's so many unknowns right now. We've seen, as Chris pointed out, player like Cassius Winston come back off an emotional family experience or life experience and put in a performance for the ages. We don't know if he's going to play. Now, how do you make a prediction not knowing if he's going to play, if he's not going to play, what kind of an emotional level he's going to bring to that game? And to be honest, we are going to be in a dogfight regardless, even if we had Miles Powell. And now you're telling me there's a very good chance you think that he's still going to play. I'm telling you he's not going to play. And I think it's a roll of the dice to even possibly win this game at this point. I don't disagree, Mike. I think a lot of the luster's been taken off this game. Michigan State's obviously not going to be number one in the country. We're potentially playing without Miles. They're going to potentially play without Winston. I don't know. It's a toss-up right now. If Winston plays and Powell doesn't, I think Michigan State wins. Otherwise, I think it's a toss-up. Hey, look, at the end of the day, you were okay with this game being a loss on the schedule at the beginning of the year. It wasn't going to kind of, you know, eat into you. If the end result is we're going into the Bahamas with Miles back healthy and they're four and one, I can live with that. I'm not accepting a loss, but I'm not going in with the sky's the limit and getting as hyped about this game as we might've been, you know, 24 hours ago. I'm just not. Well, we have another game later on in a week. Not as exciting. We head to St. Louis to play the Billikens. Last year, they finished 6th in the A-10, and preseason polls have got them finishing 7th this year. They beat Florida Gulf Coast 89-67 and Valpo 81-70 on this short season so far, and they'll play Eastern Washington on the 13th before we see them. They lost their top two scorers, but junior forward Hassan French has stepped up so far. And a little bit of local interest for New Jersey folks, 6'10 reserve center Madani Diaris from St. Benedict's Prep in Newark. Mike, do, what do you think? Do we forget that quickly that St. Louis came into our building last year and handed us a pretty crushing defeat? Oh, I, I didn't forget. It's just, I just tried to push it out of my memory. All right, so... If you're telling me Miles Powell's playing in this game, I agree with what Carino said in his season's uh, schedule preview. We should not lose this game if it was even played on the moon. If Powell's not playing, I still expect this team to win, but this game all of a sudden becomes a difficult game or a more challenging game when you have to play a true road environment. It's just bottom line. I don't know much, much about St. Louis at this point. I know they lost a lot of their firepower from last year regardless of who's stepping up so far. So they are a young, inexperienced team. But without Powell, there's just this unknown factor of what Seton Hall is capable of doing, especially in their first road environment. I think this is potentially one of those trap games that we look at. It's a travel game. It's potentially a letdown game right after the Michigan State game. I think this will show us how much uh, Willard has a pulse of this team to keep them up and prepped for the game. I do think you're correct. I do think we should beat them regardless. Yeah, so really the, the, the looking ahead is this still all comes back to Michigan State. The barometer for this week, the prognosis for how we're going to go forward is all going to stem from an evaluation of this big upcoming game on Thursday. I hope that the news about Miles Powell doesn't deter uh, those remaining tickets from being sold. I hope we still sell out the building, have this true blue out that they're talking about and it becomes quite a national scene on television to represent the program. I'm, I'm looking forward to it still. Might have dropped down a notch, like I said, but still looking forward to it.
Absolutely. And finally, this point might be a little moot. It might be over. But let's just do the countdown to 24-94 one more time. Miles had 27 against Wagner, which put him at 16-90 for his career. Unfortunately, he didn't score a point against Stony Brook. And if he's really out, that might be all she wrote. But in a positive sense, Mike, do you know he's now 11th on the all-time scoring list, passing Ken House? And next on that list is Walter Dukes with 1,789 points in only three seasons of play. Look, I was I was kind of excited for this new little kind of twist on the Miles Powell countdown that you wanted to add in. With him missing the upcoming game, potentially, possibly missing, you know, two or three more, and also not scoring in the game against Stony Brook, I think essentially it has nullified his opportunity to go ahead and break Terry's record. We had him playing the maximum slate of games running deep into the NCAA tournament in order to even have a shot at that record. If he comes back and he's putting in 27, 30 a game, and he changes the narrative from that perspective, I'll get behind the countdown again. Just to give him a little historic perspective here, Walter Dukes was on that 1953 NIT championship team. That was when the NIT was the college championship out there. He was also 80 and 12 during his time uh, at the hall. Ended up averaging a incredible 18.9 rebounds per game in his career and 22.2 during his senior season when he set a single season NCAA record with 734 boards and his number five is retired right absolutely so that's 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 good company to be in regardless so I see where I see where you're going here Seton Hall does not in our opinion do a good enough job of highlighting the historical perspective of some of their great players. Yes, we have some numbers retired, but most of these statistical uh, accomplishments are buried somewhere in a a record book and is not kind of brought to light that often. I'll play along. We can do the Miles Powell countdown and highlight some of these great players that have been forgotten in Seton Hall time as this year goes along. And maybe Miles changes the narrative and does, you know, get back on track to chase down Terry. Walter Duke is a all-time great that the average fan has no clue who he is. I mean, we're talking about the best of the best back in his time. He, he was that good, and we don't talk about players like Walter anymore. So, all right, I'll do the countdown with you, and we can kind of highlight to end some of these shows and put a stamp on the program that is kind of missing at times. I'll play along. All right, well, we've got an interesting week coming up, Mike, so let's go Big Blue. Go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Tony L, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Pirates.